Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Yelena Sofronievich. NATO has declared that it's ready to intervene on the ground in Europe to secure peace amidst rising tensions. But this isn't a story about Ukraine, at least not directly. Kosovo and Serbia have lived in uneasy coexistence since the Yugoslav wars in the 90s. And now conflict could be about to break out again, this time over car number plates. Could Europe's next grand war be in the Balkans? And did war in Kosovo ever end in the first place? Una Haidari is a freelance journalist focused on the Balkans and southern Eastern Europe. She was a fellow at MIT, the Ground Truth Project, the International Women's Media Foundation and the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna and a correspondent for Reporters Without Borders. But above all, she's a friend of the podcast and joined me back in November to talk about Bosnia. Hello, Una. Hi, I'm so glad you guys are having me back. <laughs> now, Una, when we spoke before, I asked you to lay the context of the Yugoslav wars, and many people might assume that war in Kosovo ended after those in the 90s. Can you describe as best as possible what happened in and to Kosovo since that period? Well, Kosovo is different than any other part of Yugoslavia because during the existence of the Socialist Federation, it wasn't its own republic. It was mm. a southern province. It was the southern province of Serbia. Serbia had two provinces that had extensive sort of autonomy rights. That's the northern province of, of Vojvodina and the southern province of Kosovo. That being said, because Kosovo as a province had an overwhelming Albanian majority within the province, it was always treated with even perhaps even more privileges than Vojvodina was. Yugoslavia operated according to principle of emphasizing and protecting national and ethnic rights. And when such a, you know, when, when there was a significant ethnic group is concentrated so much in a certain part of a territory, then they, you know, get a, lot, a bit more political rights with that too. The very fact that Kosovo was a province meant that in 1999, after the conflict in the country, it had to sort of juggle with a semi-independence or a political independence from Serbia, but it was monitored, it was existed as a protectorate of the United Nations until 2008 when it declared independence. And now it's been an independent country only since 2008, but since Serbia doesn't recognize its independence, there are a lot of technical issues between the two that still haven't been resolved. Mm. And terms like Kosovo, Kosovan, they all get bandied around and confused. But to clarify, at the moment, Kosovo is 90% Albanian, 10% Serbian in its population. Has that always been the case? I think the Serbian population is at about 5% now, uh, mm. sadly. It was higher before the onset of the conflict. It's been 75 to 80% Kosovo Albanian for most of the 20th century. This was the reason why there were so many political tensions in the country, because, you know, this is an ethnic group that isn't Slavic and that doesn't usually speak, you know, doesn't, they don't speak Serbian at home and stuff like that. So they, the resistance, sort of the, 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 the flashpoints were specifically tied to the fact that, you know, this, there's this group with a very specific and different identity and that, you know, in, in, this, in this past, it's either had to like conform to the Serbian, you know, way of life, be it like let's go to get educated in Serbian or speak Serbian and or now, you know, after 08, it's had to deal with sort of granting similar rights to the, you know, protecting the rights of the Serbian minority. It's different, very different from the rest of the Yugoslavia. So what is the political situation of institutions between Kosovo and Serbia? Well, Kosovo 
operates as a sovereign, independent country. Its constitution stretches its sovereignty to its borders, the borders that are internationally recognized by a majority of European or Western countries in general, but not as much Eastern, Southeast Asian, and so on and so forth. And Serbia continues to not recognize Kosovo's independence, which means that it, in its constitution, it's, it, it has the right to exercise its right to, you know, within that entire territory. On the ground, that isn't the case. So what hap- ends up happening is they control Serbian, Serbian dominant areas or Serbian majority areas like Mitrovica or Strpice or Zubinpotok or Zvech and stuff like that. And so they, in those like enclaves, sort of isolated enclaves, the Serbian community exists as if it were in Serbia. But the moment it leaves those enclaves and goes to like Pristina or other places, Kosovo as an independent country exists. And while this might sound bizarre, it's been something that's kind of been protected both by the international community who are in Kosovo as well, because the goal is to slowly transition and integrate those communities into the wider mainstream. And obviously that hasn't gone that smoothly. Now, some people are claiming that armed conflict could erupt on the basis of number plates. Tell me about this. On its face, it's it's a ridiculous issue and probably a non-issue in most countries on this planet. So, you know, having followed Kosovo, one really understands all the like minute, tiny details that, that are tied to a country becoming independent. And one of those things was obviously Kosovo's right to issue license plates. However, in these enclaves that I mentioned earlier, the Serbian community mainly had Serbian license plates. And they're different. You can really tell them apart besides sort of having the um, Serbian crest and flag and sort of logo. It, they, they, they're immediately, they're very different. You can, you can differentiate them really well. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was for years, sort of Kosovo started these, had these programs of like slowly having people transition to new license plates. Uh, the ethnic Serb community resisted for many reasons. I mean, one of them is cost, obviously. I mean, people should never underestimate the fact that a lot of these communities are very poor. Some of them have these license plates for a long time and they don't want to get new ones because that's an additional cost and the insurance and Kosovo and so on and so forth. The other reason is a lot of these communities, you know, regularly travel to Serbia. And in Serbia, Kosovo license plates aren't recognized. So they live in this limbo of like having to pick one state versus the other. But depending on what state they pick to, you know, pledge their allegiance to, they're going to have problems with the other one. And so what Kurti has done now is sort of set a very strict deadline for this transition, which caused sort of a lot of unhappiness in the north and the barricades and the stuff we saw a week or so ago. And tell me about the importance of reciprocity then and whether you think it could lead to conflict. So uh, because Serbia also doesn't recognize Kosovo documents, anytime a citizen of Kosovo enters the territory of Serbia or travels through Serbia, they need to get like a temporary document, like a piece of paper. I mean, people have confused it with visas. They're not visas. They don't go into your passports. They're actually replacements for your documents. So the Kosovo passport is not valid in Serbia. It won't be stamped by border police. So when you get to the border, they take your documents, they write down your personal ID number or whatever, your personal data, and they produce their own document, which is which is on a piece of paper, basically, that you use instead of your passport or ID in the country. So that has existed for years, and it's always made queues really long on the border, like the northern border between the two countries. And so Korti sort of, I guess, in a way to further reassert or reinforce sort of Kosovo's independence said, well, you know, it's within the rights of any country, any sovereign country to apply reciprocity measures when it feels that the other side is being disrespectful to it in some way or another. And so this disrespect, though, is completely different when it comes to Kosovo and Serbia, because their relationship is dictated by mainly by the EU facilitated dialogue between Mm. the two, which means that the two leaders, whenever they want to, like, 
set up a new measure or something, they meet in Brussels, talk about it, and it gets hashed out there. The fact that that Corti or the Coastal Prime Minister did it unilaterally was the reason why tensions were really high two weeks ago and why they will probably remain high until this is resolved. The Serbian president, Aleksandar Vucic, accused Kosovo of conducting an ethnic cleansing campaign back in June. What do you make of that? So this was this was when the measures that were supposed to come into force on um, August 1st were first announced, so in, in June or two months ahead of time. And, well, obviously, um, what I think Vucic meant, if he hadn't used rhetoric that was that inflammatory is that is that measures like this will make it let will make Kosovo a less hospitable place for the ethnic Serb or the Kosovo Serb community. So by doing these things, you know, you won't be helping them feel more welcome in this community or feel like they're wanted. On the other hand, um, comparing it to ethnic cleansing is hypocritical considering that, you know, his previous party, but also other parties in Serbia actually participated in, during the 90s, of course, not not after that, in ethnic cleansing campaigns or promoted rhetoric that led to ethnic cleansing. In, in my perception, it was a very flippant sort of offhand use of something that's a very serious concept. Mm-hmm. While I do agree that considerations need to be taken for not making the ethnic Serb community in Kosovo feel isolated and pushed out, I feel like comparing it to ethnic cleansing sort of only increases tensions and could lead to flare-ups, you know, because that'll motivate one person or a group of individuals, whatever, to like, when they set up barricades, get like really, you know, much more serious uh, weapons or something and actually attack a policeman or attack a civilian who's there or something. You know, this rhetoric like that can lead to these isolated but still deadly incidents. As always, it feels like both sides are using rhetoric to contribute to social polarisation and ethnic conflict. Una, can you tell me, though, about the idea of a greater Albania? And is that a founded fear on the Serbian side? Yeah. So one of the main talking points of Kurti's party, they still insist they're, they're a movement, even though they're officially parliamentary, like a government party, is that Kosovars were never, Kosovo Albanians were never properly granted the right to decide if they wanted to be part of Albania or Yugoslavia at the time after World War II versus Serbia. And his main claim is that if a referendum were to be organized, and considering the fact that the population is overwhelmingly Albanian, people would vote to unite with Albania or whatever. Of course, that's not going to happen. This is another example of irresponsible rhetoric, specifically because Kosovo's independence is is closely tied to maintaining the current borders. The international community and the international guarantors of Kosovo's independence have, have insisted on this over the years. But obviously for populist slash, not populist, not just populist, obviously populist and nationalist talking points, this one is pretty popular among people like Korti, but other others as well, who feel that Albanians... Kosovo Albanians are being forced into a fake union of their Serb countrymen or counterparts or whatever when the natural one is the one with Albania. It's obviously uh, similar to other sort of poisonous nationalist rhetoric that is spread by um, obviously political leaders in Serbia, but also political leaders in Croatia, certain political leaders in other uh, Balkan countries. And the fact, anytime you hear someone talking about expanding their country's territory outside of the current borders, you should know that that's bad news. Some less attuned to Balkan politics might be surprised to see the barricades being erected to block key roads across the country. How new is this crisis, the number plates crisis in particular? So it's been an issue for very, very many years. But the current phase of the crisis began in September of last year when Ivan Korti wanted to 
impose these coastal war plates on the ethnic Serb community and the enclaves and in, in the north. Frankly, the, the issue is as old as Kosovo has been separate from Serbia. So Serbia, like I said earlier, because it considers Kosovo to be part of its territory, constitutionally and in every other sense, its Ministry of Interior issues license plates for cities that are found within Kosovo today. So you can go and get a license plate for technically for Pristina, for Mitrovica, for Lepisovic, for all these places, you know, as if, it were, if they were sort of magically still part of Serbia. Because the North is so sensitive and so sore point on, for both sides, some leaders, when they attempted to solve the license plate issue, would try to do it in a less sort of harsh and direct way than Kurti does. His excuse for doing it, for tackling it heads on, is that Serbian citizens are being given a free pass on not sticking to the rule of law, not to buy, not abiding to laws, and not you know not actually adhering to the policies of the country they live in. And he says that as a country, like all Balkan countries and all Balkan countries that want to be EU members, his rhetoric or his excuse for it is they constantly talk about us having to implement better rule of law principles and all that kind of stuff. But while uh, while uh, the international community also expects me to let people in the North break all of Kosovo's laws and not react to it. So that's his, you know that's his, his his rationale, and then people who analyze Kosovo can stand on have different takes on the issue. Like some say that he's going too far, others say that you know he makes a point, but that it should be done differently, and yeah, so on, so forth. So how has the crisis in Ukraine changed political dynamics in the Balkans? Well, first of all, I think people hoped that Ukrainians, but also the international community, would refer to the Balkan conflicts and wars in the 1990s more as things were developing in Ukraine, because obviously a lot of, so many precedents, both political and military, were set during this period. Mm -hmm. And I think there's been like a wide wave of disappointment when it comes to that. I think people are really surprised that nobody, your average Ukrainian, or even your average analyst of like world affairs or European affairs would know the first thing about the conflicts in the Balkans. And especially when people start to say things like Europe has been at peace for 70 years until this war in Ukraine. And, and it, it, people feel very offended by that, you know, like their, their war and their suffering and, and the massive civilian casualties are just being, you know, um, wiped out. On the other hand, I think while the details of the wars that happened in the 90s aren't being looked at, what happened in the north of Kosovo, which while unfortunate, is not like some massive event, I mean, massive, extraordinary sort of escalation, sadly, um, it's a bit more regular than, 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 than it should be. But it got like all this global attention. And everyone like in the region was like, what's going on? Like, why is everyone suddenly paying attention to something we can you know, barely get attention for um, otherwise? And Bosnia especially is getting a lot more attention too, because Milorad Dodik, obviously the main, the only person who, who, who everyone from the Balkan, from outside the Balkans, might know for his antics, including sort of calling Sergei Lavrov like a couple of days after the invasion and and going to Moscow and that kind of stuff. When the entire Western world was like ignoring Russia, um, he he went against that. Obviously, he's now seen as more of a risk factor than he was before. Like people who talk about influences he got, like the money, both financial support and political support that he got from Russia in the past in a more casual manner, now definitely um, take it way more seriously. (laughs) 
There's certainly been a spike in international interest in Kosovo from a lot of Ukraine watchers. Do you think that it's overblown, perhaps even Balkanist, to appropriate one conflict for another? The worst thing is that I think there are actually a lot of similarities, starting from things like both uh, you know, Ukraine and the Balkans were part of social, separate but socialist sort of movements in the 20th century. They were socialist countries. They're Slavic majority areas. They, you know, these are both countries are, you know, Cyrillic is not a phenomenon, an unknown phenomenon in, the, in, in these parts of the world and stuff like that. So on one hand, I think it would make sense for there to be um, more of an understanding. I just don't feel, I don't see actual understanding. I just see Ukraine watchers jump to conclusions with very little knowledge about what's happening on the ground and assume that everything that the way things have been working out with Ukraine in the last couple of months, that they automatically apply to Kosovo or the Western Balkans in general. Yeah. Um, for example, um, the air um, people were getting really panicky about the air raids in North Mitrovica when the barricades were being put up, put up. And as someone who's been in Ukraine since the renewed invasion, I've, uh, you know, the air raids there are a signal of incoming missile strikes, whereas the air raids in the north are meant to, I mean, I guess, similarly sort of warn citizens, but they, people rely on them, like, you know, they have, have relied on them for many years as sort of a hint from the police or, you know, the government that, you know, there might be tensions and we suggest that you just stay at home. Like, it doesn't mean that there's, there's something's going to strike their house or apartment and they're going to die and they should go in, they should go into a bunker. So the stakes that people deal with in Ukraine, but it just means don't be on the street. Maybe there could be like some stray shot or something. And, and we don't want that to happen to you. So people are, you know, take it, take it completely differently. The takes in Ukraine were like, Oh, um, what's happening in Kosovo, what we have been experiencing for three month, three or four months in Ukraine is now happening to Kosovo. And I almost want to be like, no, this has been happening in Kosovo for 20 years, but you yeah. haven't paid attention, you yeah. know? So that there's that, there's that dis- discrepancy of assuming that something that applies to Ukraine can be automatically transferred to um, the Balkans. And, and I don't mean to be, you know, it, it, I understand that, you know, Ukraine watchers and both Ukrainian analysts are, you know, feel like they have, an understanding of certain things when it comes to obviously conflicts and conflicts on the ground and stuff. It's just, it's not what the, the, ta- the dominant takes haven't been the right ones. And I feel like we've come to a point where we're just perpetuating fear of conflict for the sake of spreading panic instead of actually under, you know, spreading understanding of different contexts that could lead us to either prevent conflict or prevent sort of the negative co- consequences um, I wish that people in Ukraine would look at the Balkans and understand um, what, you know, ex- exclusionary policies with regard to minorities or languages and stuff like that, you know, cause over a long period of time. And that that could affect perhaps their treatment of, you know, Russian speaking communities in the country. I don't I'm not seeing that, though. I'm seeing the opposite. I'm just seeing you're useful to us right now because we're in a state of panic and we want the world to know that everything's gone you know, terribly wrong. And, and, and you help sort of spread that on a wider scale. Mm. The Western media discourse of Ukraine as the first large scale war of aggression in Europe since the Second World War reminds me of that because it ignores the history of the 90s. And I imagine there are a lot of people across the Balkans who feel a sense of resentment even being forgotten by the West there. But moving on, some have called Serbia Putin's Trojan horse in Europe. What are they referring to and are they right? Serbian leaders, I mean, presidents and prime ministers going back to 
the 90s have all had a close relationship with the Russian leadership over the years. It has a lot to do with the fact that, I mean, mainly to do with the fact that the NATO bombing in 1999 continues to be a sore point and extremely mm. unpopular move by the West when it comes to Serbian citizens. They see it as a very traumatic and negative event. And obviously the most vocal country in the world when it comes to criticizing that move, but also criticizing international intervention and presence in the Balkans, so not in other parts of the world, has been Russia. And so they feel this sense of kinship and the sense of having a protector of their own, you know, because when the bombing happened, Serbs or Serbian citizens felt like the West was turning against them and that they were left without allies. And, and, and that's where Russia stepped in. Mm-hmm. That being said, though, I think for anyone who understands, who knows anything about Serbia before the 90s and understands the wider context, this wasn't something that had you know centuries in the making. There were moments when when either the first Yugoslavia or Serbia was you know had a good decent relationship with Russia, but you know for most of the Soviet the existence of the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, including Serbia, had a very acrimonious relationship. Because people often when they think about this, they're like, oh, Serbs have always just been on Russia's side. And I'm like, no, that's not true. It, it really came to a head in the nineties, and so knowing that people react to Russia like this in Serbia. Serbian leaders have sort of encouraged a very positive approach to the country and, you know, organized fancy events for Putin when he visited and stuff like that. But now, obviously, the government is in a position where it can't, like, write off Russia off the bat, but it's it's very uncomfortable with sort of the position it has to play. That being said, the only major economic benefit that Serbia gets from Russia is gas at a, at a more favorable price than other countries in the Balkans. Otherwise, the EU is the main investor and the main sort of funder of so much in Serbia to the point where people, if people assume that either they're equally beneficial to the country, that's completely not true. The EU is by far is much more involved in Serbia's future which is why, you know, Serbia is not Russia's Trojan horse. It can never, it will never be, it will never like, or it would be extremely unlikely. Um, I've learned never to say never after February uh, of this year, but it would be extremely unlikely for Serbia to just get up and be like, okay, now we're going to fight Russia's wars on other fronts for them and stuff like that. That's unlikely. The only thing that is true is that the public rhetoric towards Russia would be much more um, guarded and, I mean, Serbia still hasn't, and you know, launched sanctions or participated in the sanctions packages against Russia. So, yeah, the West has always understood Kosovo as a kind of textbook case of foreign intervention and international relations, often simplifying and even justifying its own success by the widespread use of the name Tony Blair or Clinton statues and street names in Pristina. Our fellow presenter, Arthur Snell, is one of few IR commentators to point out things like you mentioned, the ethnic cleansing of Serbs in Kosovo, that was part of that peace building process. How successful, now that we're 20 years on, can we say that that really was? There's one thing that's really important with the intervention in in, in 1999, and nobody can take away the pain and the civilian casualties that were caused by the bombing, which however good of an, let's say, reason you have for it, should not be the way Western countries should react to aggression and authoritarian regimes and stuff Mm. like that, by killing civilians. That being said, it set a very interesting precedent in terms of, which wasn't very replicated very well anywhere else, but the precedent there was 
bear in mind, Milosevic was someone who had violated agreement after agreement after agreement, which was supposed to, you know, and the, with every new agreement that he violated, with regard to Kosovo, sorry, so not, not Bosnia, Bosnia and Croatia and all that had been solved, relatively solved in 1995 with the Dayton Agreement. And so the NATO bombing threat became more real the more he disagreed, you know, he didn't stick to agreements. Again, the, on the philosophical side of things, or whatever, the argumentative side of things, the West argues that we felt a need to intervene because Serbia was not capable of taking care of its citizens or a big chunk of its citizens. You know, it decided to violate the principle of national sovereignty or a government that dictates, you know, that, that determines the fate of its own people by taking away their power to rule or to govern over, you know, a big chunk of territory and a big chunk of its population because it was constantly, you know, abusing it and limiting its rights and so on and so forth. Precisely because it was such a precedent, it then ended up putting a lot of money into making Kosovo successful. <laughs> so the UN, right after the bombing, set up its own, like I mentioned earlier, set up its own mission to basically be like the actual government. Like Kosovo had elections and had its own government and everything, but the UN administrators were the actual government, you know, like ba- literally a protectorate. In 08, when Kosovo declared independence, they withdrew some of their capabilities but the EU then set up their biggest civilian mission in the country again to help it sort of be successful. I can say that generally Kosovo has been successful, but a lot of money and effort has been put into it being successful. In reverse, then, what lessons about the limits of Western intervention should be taken from the Balkans? Well, the main lesson should obviously be something that was actually applied to Kosovo, but not to anything else. And that was that you know, Russia did participate in the negotiation process and it did participate in the peace agreement. And it did, you know, both both at the UNSC and with the agreements on the ground and everything. It helped give the process a lot lot more legitimacy and it helped sort of enshrine a lot of minority rights, which, like I said earlier, might not have been, are not implemented to any extent that they, you know, not nowhere close to the extent they should be, but, but are still on paper. This is not something that is applied to because Russia's relationship to the West changes so drastically after Putin comes in power, or slowly changes, but definitely in 2000, it got, you know, that was the beginning of, of the Putin era. There wasn't any other intervention where they could cooperate on that level or any other, I hate calling it intervention because that word is so toxic, but like I meant like a military offensive or assisting local forces mm-hmm. or whatever. When interventions cause polarizations on the geopolitical scene as well, you know, they're also detrimental to the countries on the ground, to, to the countries themselves, because then they put the countries on a trajectory of being either, you know, Kosovo in many ways because of what happened in 1999, which it didn't participate in, like it didn't choose, the government didn't vote to approve the NATO bombing or wanted or asked for it. Of course, you know, Kosovo Albanians were happy that it led to the Yugoslav army forces that were torturing them and, you know, abusing them to be to leave Kosovo, but they didn't ask for it to happen. And there are a lot of Albanian civilian casualties, too. It's just not in Kosovo. Actually, on the territory of Kosovo, there are more Albanian civilians who died than ethnic Serbs. And obviously, the big, big Serbian casualties are on the territory of today's Serbia. It's about how these narratives are shaped after the intervention, and NATO is seen as a very positive thing in Kosovo, despite all the casualties and everything, whereas in Serbia it's seen as a very negative thing. It's really, Kosovo never had the choice of picking its own path because the intervention was done without the Kosovo-Albanian participation, and it just had to be pro-Western, or else it wouldn't exist. This is something that's really important that's not thought about a lot, that Kosovo mm-hmm. never got to decide how it, what it would, where it would place itself in this whole, in that whole intervention. 
Finally, Una, I asked you last time if we were about to witness the outbreak of conflict in the Balkans again. I'm going to ask you again, are we? Definitely not. I'm a lot more sure now than I was when it came to Bosnia because NATO's presence in Kosovo is a double-edged sword. It makes means the country is not fully independent or fully able to guarantee the safety of its own citizens. But on the other hand, it completely makes it almost completely impossible for any sort of armed conflict to escalate in the country. So yeah, uh, it's not going to happen. Not in Kosovo, at least. Una, thank you ever so much for joining me again today. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, if you found this episode interesting, be sure to listen to our episode on Bosnia and the Balkans on the brink of war. The link is in the show notes. Subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And you can also back us on Patreon. Just see our social media for details. This is Jelena Sofronovic signing out of the bunker. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jelena Sofronievich, the producers Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevic. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey, group editor Andrew Harrison, and theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production 